Hey, and welcome to the Entrepreneur's Ecosystem Podcast, where we aim to help you, the big-hearted change maker with a bold vision to build a business that gives you butterflies and a life that makes you want to high-five yourself. How? By addressing the interconnected nature of all that you do. From marketing to mindset and everything in between, we believe your business is more ecosystem than monoculture and that when it comes to creating sustainable success, it's all connected and there is no one-size-fits-all formula. Join us for conversations that embrace nuance, elevate the importance of empathy, and address the diverse and unique strengths that enable entrepreneurs to not just make money, but to make real lasting positive change in a regenerative and revolutionary way. Hello friends and welcome back to the Entrepreneur's Ecosystem. It's just me today. Dawn couldn't make it. So I'm going to have to be super extra to make up for her wonderful presence. And I don't think we'll have a problem though, because we have a fabulous guest today joining us is Dallas Travers. If you are a coach who serves everyday people, you need to know Dallas. Her ripple effect system teaches the exact steps to attract paying clients, build your list daily, then scale your business with a course. So you never again have to ask, what should I do today? Boom. So excited to meet you. This is our first time meeting Ah. and just to chat with you today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'll bring a little extra to make up for Dawn's absence. (laughs) (laughs) I always say she's the tomato to my basil. So maybe you can Uh, be extra tomato-y. Okay. Whatever that means. Bring some mozzarella cheese, perhaps. Juicy, umami. Yeah. (laughs) So I love to start every episode and get a sense of whether you resonate with any of the systems out there that exist to give people a deeper understanding and knowledge of themselves. So that could be astrology, human design, your Enneagram, DISC, Myers-Briggs, like do any of those resonate with you? Yeah, sure. So I'm a Colby quick start. I'm like a 10 on the Colby and quick start. I'm an Enneagram three. Uh, I'm a Capricorn. And when you look at my astrological chart, actually our client success manager on my team, Kylie, is very into astrology. And as a her birthday gift this year, I bought her a course. So we're like next leveling her astrology knowledge. So she read my chart and basically Every, any planet that could be in Capricorn is. So I am a textbook extreme version of, of a Capricorn for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I recently revisited my Colby results and mm-hmm. I'm high quick start, but also high fact finder. Mm-hmm. Oh, and those two like hate each other. Yeah. they re- There's a tug of war there for sure. Yeah. So... Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do about that, but I identify with the quick startiness of breaking stuff. Just yeah. like make changing your mind and breaking stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and wanting to do all the things all at once. And I'm a three as well on the Enneagram. Oh, okay. So I feel you there too. Sounds like we got some things in common. I think so. Shanti. Just, just having like an understanding of your strengths, your weaknesses from these different systems has it impacted how you run your business? Oh, in so many ways. And the older I get, I'm 45. I started my business when I was my first business when I was 24. And back then it was just like grit and naivete, right? (laughs) But the older I get, the more opportunities I find to fill gaps that are naturally unseen for me, given how I'm wired, right? And the planetary alignment of when I was born. But I can think of a really specific, two specific examples of this. 
we hired, we made a big hire last year, uh, Julie, who's like a project manager on our team. And we had to have a conversation about what to do because I'm high quick start in the Colby and she's extremely low in quick start. We're like polar opposites, which is what I actually, that was the gap on the team, but that can also be a, an uncomfortable work environment for someone who's a fact finder to have a boss. Who's just, like I said earlier, breaking stuff all the time. So having that understanding of myself allowed me to bring that forward in the interview process, just so that she knew what she was getting into and we could talk through what is our approach so that we can both use our strengths and she feels happy and safe in her workplace. So that's a, like, that's a concrete example. And then another one, I don't know if you relate to this, but I'm a very linear thinker. That's the Capricorn in me, I guess. Right. And so when I look at the way in which we deliver our program, I have to work extra hard to serve different styles of learners, in particular, those people who are neurodivergent, because I just don't think in that way at all. And it doesn't even occur to me that other people don't think the way that I do. So just slowing down and bringing that awareness that my way is not the only way. And I think a lot of people in the online space don't put enough thought into that. It's sort of like, well, I'm, I'm giving you the best that I can. And if you can't implement, it's on you. Mm-hmm. And I just see, given how I'm built, it's actually on me to ensure that my people can implement because not everyone is built like I am. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Learning styles are so critical to understand when our job is to teach. Right. And even to sell. Like how someone consumes or gets to a point through engaging with your content that they would be ready to work with you. That's so different for everyone, right? Whether it's like writing, video, actual back and forth conversation. And I'm sure there's, there's more that I'm not thinking of, but what techniques have you brought in to help bridge that gap? Yeah, that's a great question. So this is all really new and fresh. So the first thing we did was hire a consultant who who serves ADHD and neurodivergent learners to get her insight on what are best practices, in particular onboarding, right? So that people can be set up for success in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's the first piece. And then I'm just learning more and more about small things that I can say differently. Before we started recording, you and I were talking about coaching calls and how fun they are, right? These group coaching calls, how I can say things differently to help people who may have a lived experience because their learning is not necessarily air quotes here, typical, can have a lived experience of being wrong a lot, right? So there are things that I can say differently in order to um, avoid perpetuating that story for them. For example, well, did you watch the video in module four, right? Right. Versus that undertone of guilt. Yeah, right. And even if I, it's not for me, writing on that, if you have a lived experience of being wrong a lot, that's exactly how it's going to land. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just learning little Pete, like how to show up, um, really bringing neutrality, which we should as coaches anyhow. Yes. Uh, to every to every conversation, so that we can help people move along rather than perpetuate the experience that often keeps them stuck. Yeah. Absolutely. My husband has ADHD. And one of the things for him is if it's, if he can't see it, it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right. So the onboarding thing makes sense because it like, you need to see all that's available to you, where it lives and for that to be laid out in a way that it's just really simple to grasp. That's for anyone, I think, but yeah, I, I love that you hired a consultant on that. Yeah, we just got started with it. So I'm really excited. And I don't know where you're at with this in your business, but I'm in this place where I love 
finding out where I've been doing things wrong. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that we can just serve people at a deeper level and get better results for them. So that's that's the season I'm in in my business for sure is really plugging all the holes, right? And filling the gaps. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful place to be. There's the whole Dunning-Kruger effect in mm. play at all times. It's like, oh, I think I know so much about this. And actually, once you really dig into a subject, you realize there's the whole universe that none of us, for the most part, know until right. we, you don't know what you don't know. So until you explore that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll piggyback on the sales perspective of this a little bit. And I'm also going to mention that we spoke about this in an episode, an earlier episode with Sage Polaris, who's an incredible copywriter. And she teaches on this model of writing copy where you look at different personality types. So Mm -hmm. you are speaking to maybe people based on the DISC model. Some personality types are more dominant and want to get like straight into action, whereas others are more emotional and and really need to be nurtured and supported and for that conversation to happen in order for them to feel confident in ever buying from you. And then other people are more analytical and we all have little bits of each too, right? But we are trying to be more intentional about that too in just the way that we write, teach, and I say, we, I think I'm just used to saying we, because I don't really have Dawn here. <laughs> so really me, the team working on client projects, it's like, okay, let's think about all the different personality types that would also be engaging with this material. And that's even beyond learning styles, right? Mm-hmm. So there's so much nuance that we can explore there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a concrete, I'm so curious, do you have a, like a, an example, even if like, and if we can make it simple, I don't know if I'm like setting this conversation up for success or not, but do you have an example of how you might, a certain headline or a certain call to action, what it might look like for one personality versus the other? Yeah. Well, if we take a long form sales page Mm -hmm. as the example, Mm -hmm. and so let's say, I'm working with a client who is really high D in the DISC model, which is very common for entrepreneurs. And they see this long form sales page that has very intentional sections, Uh you know, some sections that will speak to statistics around a certain topic and that is speaking directly to the person who needs that analytical understanding of a problem and to know that the person who's going to help them solve that problem gets that as well. So you might have that as a section with some numbers and, and research and like evidence-based stuff. And then you might have, you might have like hundreds of testimonials sprinkled throughout that page because the person who's, uh, I, sometimes I know the colors and sometimes I know, know the words, but like the yellow, okay, they're going to see those and see the story in them and see themselves in that. And there's a strong emotional connection, mm-hmm. but the client who's high D and very dominant, is going to see that long form sales page with all the different sections And they'll be like, whoa, 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 this is way too long. There's way too much information. Like just give them a buy button and let's wrap. And that doesn't work because we know that there's all these different types of people and they all need different things. And so yes, to you, this is way too long and you just watch the video and then click the button and be done with it. But your audience, not so much. Yeah. Not all of them. Yeah. I just had the same, a similar conversation with a client yesterday who is doing a big summit event and then going to follow up the following week uh, with a webinar to present her offer. And she's really butting up against this fear of over emailing. Mm -hmm. So just to have that conversation about like, first of all, we can't 
like, please don't write emails with the motivation of not offending people because they're not going to work very well. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I had to encourage her to keep in mind there are people who need that last little nudge. There are people who need that super long FAQ email with every little detail in it. Like there's yeah. a reason behind all the strategy and it's not a, a slick sales reason. It's actually how you serve different types of decision makers and different types mm-hmm. of, of thinkers. That's yeah, absolutely. I, I hear that all the time. The fear of too many emails. Am I, am I bugging them? And mm-hmm. like, there are so many people that won't even know you're launching until the very last day right. <laughs> when you maybe send two or three emails and then their ears perk up and it's like, oh, what's going on over here? Totally. So yeah, yeah, it's a tricky one. Because if you are if you are of the personality type where you're like, I don't like getting tons of emails, it's easy to assume everyone else thinks and feels that way too. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So you work with coaches. I do. And I am not sure all types of coaches. Mm, That's a good question. I am really good at helping coaches who often feel like there isn't a place for them. And I don't mean misfits necessarily, but I think in, especially in the online space, a lot of group programs are coaches who coach coaches on how to get coaching clients. And there's a little bit of that like pyramid scheme vibe sometimes, right? So my community tends to be coaches who have been in those other programs looking around thinking, am I the only person here who isn't a, who, who isn't a business coach? Right. So values driven coaches who serve sometimes I say real humans, right? So like, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, we have a, a couple of book coaches in our program and an Afro-Caribe dance instruct- instructor in our program and yeah. a coach who helps professional musicians get college teaching jobs and like these oh. very niched and specific areas of expertise where they often look around and like I said, just kind of wonder, am I in the right place? Mm-hmm. So, and you know, this what we work, focus on can surely help business coaches, but there's a lot of coaches who can for business coaches. So I like serving coaches who haven't found their home yet. I love that. Yeah. So neat. What was it that drew you to work with coaches? Mm. So it was just this natural evolution. And I it's probably one that a lot of people go through. But my first business was actually serving actors. So I was a career coach for actors. And essentially, because I'm not a former actor, just teaching them entrepreneurial skills. And the way I got into that was, again, this evolution. And that's a, a perhaps a story for another day because it's a little long-winded. But so I was serving actors and teaching them how to kind of do three things. Number one, find a talent agent or manager. Number two, find work without a talent agent or manager. And then number three, like feel good about yourself in the face of rejection every darn day. And that business was pretty revolutionary at the time. And coaches started to see that what I had created and then approached me to ask, could you help me do what you've done in my niche. So I had this thriving business serving actors and I started mentoring other coaches kind of on the down low a little bit. Right. And then over time, especially after my daughter was born, I became, I developed quite a disconnection from the entertainment industry and then just no longer felt equipped or knowledgeable or invested enough to serve actors in the way that I really that someone should, right, in that role. So I just shifted, followed the natural evolution that was occurring and shifted gears to now coach coaches. That's how it goes, right? Yeah. The yeah, universe right. is just like, no, we need you over here now. Come on. Here's some signs. Here's some people yeah. who want to know what you got going on. Yeah. And yeah, it's always interesting when those skill sets uh, overlap and you mm-hmm. can you can shift into a different, a different niche. 
What's yeah. the... Go ahead. I feel like I got so many signs, Shanti. I don't know. Are you good at following signs? Because I, it's funny because I'm quick starty, right? But this decision, when I look back on it, and this might, I don't know if this will land for any listeners, but I knew for probably three years what I was meant to do next. And I didn't do it because I just had so much love for the people I was working with that I was really relating to that pivot as abandoning this audience that I just really had and have such an affinity for, uh, which is unlike me because we've talked about how I'm a fast mover, but this decision was just a very, very hard one for me to make. And if I had it to do again, I would have done it more quickly because by the time I finally made the change, I was really over it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I feel that's so common with mm-hmm. that, that type of decision or maybe our, our listeners can relate if you've ever been in a circumstance where you're comfortable and you're good at something and you enjoy it and you know, right. you're doing good in the world, but you feel called to do something else to leave that. Like, it's one thing to leave a bad situation, Right. Mm-hmm. It's another to leave a good situation so that you can create something greater. Yeah. Especially when the something greater isn't going to happen right away. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I was just chatting with my coach the other day about that because I'm working on this project that feels totally like outside of the realm of what I, the work that I normally do. And we started talking around the the expectation that you move from being successful. Like, like there's two mountains beside each other. And the idea that you can like be at the peak of one mountain and then just throw a bridge across and get to the peak of the other mountain. It's like, no, you have to climb down the mountain and then climb up the other mountain. There's no shortcuts. There's no magical bridge. And that's a deeply uncomfortable thing to do when you're used to having that wonderful view. I never thought about the climbing down the mountain part. I was totally tracking with that analogy. Like, right, yeah, you have to climb up the other mountain. But I didn't even think about the climbing down part, which is just the (laughs) Right, totally. You know it's what's happening on the other side. It's like, yeah. Oh, this I've done this journey before. Yeah. It's not an easy one, but and there is that period where it's like sophomore year of high school Spanish class. That's let's call it that period where I speak English fluently. I've been speaking it for a really long time and I know enough Spanish to know how well I am not speaking Spanish. Yeah. And so it's like super f- frustrating to go through that learning process, especially because the way you learn is by like speaking Spanish to someone else. And then there's the ego for any Enneagram three. Anyhow, there's that ego piece and not getting it right in public. And mm-hmm. yeah, I love that analogy of climbing down the mountain and then up the other side. I love it too. Now that I can put that visual to it, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I know, I know what's going on and I can, I can work with this. Yeah. Before that conversation, I was just like, why? Why can't I just throw the bridge across? Like, come on. (laughs) Yeah. Perspective shift. That's why I love coaches so much because they help you see those blind spots. And yeah, I'm curious from your perspective, what blind spots you might see with coaches trying to build their coaching practice and build their businesses. Yeah, that's such a good question. The big one, I think the most, so specifically when it comes to selling, but it's the same, same weakness when it comes to how we serve. But I want, let's talk about the selling piece first. Coaches love coaching. We love a good certification program, (laughs) right? Like we're so into transformation that sometimes we excavate deeper than we even need to in order to solve a problem, right? We love it. 
And yet, and a lot of, especially the coaches that I work with, they have a strong aversion to selling because in their mind, they've decided that it's the opposite of coaching. So this lack of awareness or this assumption rather that it's different is the biggest obstacle between a coach and the clients that they really want to serve. So we actually were having a call this morning about this. And I was just saying over and over again, don't convince coach, right? Like when in doubt, ask another question. Mm -hmm. Center the client instead of yourself. So if I'm centering myself and coaches get that, like we're all about like honoring the client's experience and all of their wisdom is inside of them and all of those things. So, but they don't think about that being a possibility when they're in a sales conversation or on a webinar or any of these other client attraction strategies. But the more you can center the client, the easier it is to sell because that centering the client comes really naturally to coaches. So even like in our space, there's a lot of talk of overcoming objections, right? There's training on overcoming objections. But as a coach, we shouldn't ever overcome an objection, We should inquire about what's underneath, right? Maybe address concerns, but there are no objections to overcome. There are only questions to ask. So you asked about this unconscious lack of awareness, and it's, it's that. It's that selling is coaching, and you do that by centering the client. And it's how you serve, too, right? Just put the client first and then. Suddenly we have more courage than we thought we did because I'm advocating for the thing that you want. I care so much about your goals and your purpose and your transformation that my weirdness around raising my rates or (laughs) hosting a webinar and being awkward or throwing an offer out there and no one responding, all of that evaporates when the client is centered. Yeah. Approaching those conversations from a place of curiosity Mm. is such a game changer. Mm -hmm. So I've heard on a sales call that the ideal ratio for talking versus listening is as the coach, as the person doing the selling to maybe be doing 20% of the talking and then 80% is just listening. I agree with that. And, but it just, it also depends on the quality of the listening. Right. Right. Just just because you're not talking doesn't mean you're actually listening. Like active listening and ridding your trying to rid yourself of that attachment to a certain outcome. Yeah. Or the expectation that it's going to go a certain way. Yeah. Or even this judgment that if the client says no, I've something went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because that, like, or I've made a mistake, the client is at where they're at in their journey. They're meant to say no today. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to sound glib because we, you're, you have a business and you want to, your business to be profitable and you want to help people. There's the reality there too. But the more neutrally I can show up, the more graceful the, the sale is, right? And yeah. the more quickly I recover when the sale doesn't happen. I found that too. And to just approach a sales call from a place of how can I be of service to this person? Like they booked this call for a reason, even if that reason isn't to necessarily work with me. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this because I think it's easy to heed that advice and take it too literally because then, okay, well, I'm just meant to serve. So now I'm going to serve you. And if it's meant to be, you'll just pull out your wallet at the end of our conversation (laughs) and ask to buy my thing. Right. That is also not serving. Yeah. Yeah. Serving is advocating for the client, which means taking a strong, if you believe that your program, your service, your package, whatever that is, if you believe it can help them, You've got to advocate for that and take a strong stance. Mm -hmm. So that is truly what service looks like. It's not just being helpful and assuming that if you help the heck out of the situation, that somehow they're going to want to hire you because people need to be led. Yes. And I think that is where 
coaching skills become Mm -hmm. so incredibly useful in parallel to sales skills because Mm -hmm. you have to sometimes ask questions that are not comfortable to ask. For me, there was this kind of reckoning and letting go of the desire for the person on the other side of the conversation to like really like me. Yeah. And maybe I'm going to have to ask a question that challenges something that feels emotional or hard or confronting. It's, it's not like I would ask it in a, in a rude way, but it is my responsibility to ask if that is related to how, what I sell can help them. Yeah. I think in any, any way that you're selling, whether that's, we're talking like a lot about sales calls here, but even on a webinar, your, your sales email sequence, all of it. From my perspective, I have one job, which is to help you make an empowered and clear decision. Mm -hmm. So If that decision is no, but you feel clear about that decision, I have done my job. It's this, let me think about it, or we're just having a DM conversation for 47 days and we're not moving forward. I'm not, I'm not doing my job. I'm not actually helping you. And I think, especially at this day and age, we go through our lives with so many, so much unfinished business. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to pile another thing to think about on anybody's plate. And I'm okay if you decide no, but leaving you unsure, I haven't done my job. Yeah, absolutely. The open loops, the endless (laughs) open loops that, yeah, if you're not intentional about actually coming to a clear decision or talking to someone whose goal is to help you get to that place, Mm -hmm. it's just so easy to stay in limbo, but it's not easy ultimately. It's energy sucking. Yeah, totally. Brutal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. It's it's finding this balance between non-attachment and curiosity, as well as honoring the value of what you have to offer and the meaning of someone taking the time to book a call with you. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious, and maybe we've covered some of it from what we just talked about, but when you said in our email exchange that you've (laughs) got this great British Bake Off approach to sales call confidence, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to hear what this is. I love, I love cooking shows. I love the great British Bake Off. Like I'm here for it. So can we start by like bringing cookies to the call and what do we do? Cool. Great. So I'm, I'm glad that you watch Bake Off. I love, I love that show. It's so great. So just in case anyone listening has no idea what we're talking about, the great, and the great British British Bake Off is 16, I think, or 12 Shanti contestants come together, they're home bakers. And it's this, 16 or 12 week process where they compete until there's one person left standing. And every episode they have, there are three bakes that happen. So the first one is the signature bake, right? The second one is the technical challenge. And then the third one is the showstopper. So the signature bake, I get to prepare for that. I know what I'm asked to do ahead of time. It can be my own spin on often a classic recipe, right? Showstopper, same thing. I've practiced my bake a lot of times. I've got a plan going in. There are some contestants, you can see it, where they timetable the whole thing. So by 20 minutes in, this is where I need to be in order to be on schedule. They're super prepared. But it's that middle, uh, that middle bake, the technical challenge where they come in, everything, they don't know what the recipe is going to be. The, the instructions they're given are sparse, to say the least. And then they're just handed these ingredients. And what I noticed is it's the technical where people do the worst. 
<laughs> where things can really go sideways or you'll even see bakers kind of give up in the middle and they're just laughing at this disaster that they're cooking. And it's because there's no preparation. So the most important step to take if what you want is, especially if you're values driven, if what you want is to have sales call confidence, the most important step is practice. And I don't mean practice in front of people who could be your clients. I mean, work all of that stuff out before you're in in the tent, right? So in Bake Off, they come to the tent and it's like quite an experience for them to bake inside the tent. You need to show up to the tent with your plan in place and with so much mm, agility and confidence and presence in your bones that you know, no matter what's thrown your way, you can you can get through the experience without going home. And I just feel like because coaches don't like selling, they don't practice, and then they're set up to always not like selling. So that's the key ingredient is actually practicing. And then the second piece is following a recipe. So I think that the most important ingredients in the recipe, there are a couple of them. We talked about this first one of like centering the client. And, and I don't just mean focusing on them. I mean having this awareness of where your own stuff is coming up. Can they afford it? Will they like me? Should I present this offer or that? Oh no, like we're running behind schedule. They didn't respond to my reminder email. What does it mean? Like we can get so twisted up about what's going to happen. That's self-centered. So key ingredient is centering yourself. And then the other big one is, like I said before, using your coaching skills. So some people will push back on this, but, and say you're not, to coach in a sales call. This is like coaching is reserved for when someone is a client. You're like, this is about enrolling them. And if you coach them on anything, you coach them on their money objections. Why not use the thing that you're most skilled at to give the client the experience of the work and then decide together to take it further or not? Why would you withhold the, the thing you're actually going to do together, the thing you're actually selling, it's like selling a car without letting someone test drive it or know the color or the make or the model. <laughs> so the formula that I follow for enrollment conversations includes a lot of coaching. And so then the mistake becomes, oh, so I have to take someone to a transformation. I have to give them value. We've got to like have a roadmap or this finished product. And that's not the case at all. There's so much power in being a container where someone's actually just listening to you. So when I say coaching, that's what I mean. Holding the space for the client to be heard, reflecting back what you hear, and then making a thoughtful recommendation about what comes next. So I call it the British Bake Off Method because practice is the key to it. But then you also have to have this recipe. So it's centering the client. It's using your coaching skills. And then the third ingredient is actually presenting an invitation. So we, we talked about that earlier too, where it's like you can't just serve, serve, serve and hope that someone is either guilted because <laughs> you've given them so much yeah. or, or, right, or so wowed um, by the value you've given them that they just want to throw money at you. You actually have to invite and you have to give people the space to make the decision. Mm -hmm. right? So invite and then stop talking. Yeah. And that's such a common, I know I do it, is this tendency to over talk at the oh. end after you've, you know, here's the invitation. Now let me say a million things so that you can't even get a word in or a thought in. <laughs> right. We did this uh, in my program. We do these playbacks. So students will record a practice sales call and then we watch it back together as a group. And it is, it's brutal. And they're so brave. I would never I would, I would never have the courage. <laughs> I've had to do that. And it's, right. you just cringe at yourself. You're like, right. uh. 
But yesterday, when we watched this back, it was so interesting because, so the coach presented the offer. The client said, so what would that look like, right? And the coach went into describing every single detail that was irrelevant. My sessions are 60 minutes long. We're going to talk every other week. The price is this much, and you'll get email support in between. She never explained the focus of the work or the benefit of the work. Yeah. A is 45-minute sessions once a month, and package B is 60-minute sessions twice a month. So so now I'm left to make this potentially life-changing decision based on how many minutes we're going to talk. So, And we do that. We are the ones who inform how they make the decision. And too often, because we're nervous, we just fill that space with details that don't matter. So tempting and easy to do. That's so common in cop in written copy too, is the overemphasis of features when that is the thing of least importance. Mm -hmm. It's like, what are the benefits? What is the transformation? Yeah. And also just equating, I wonder if you see this sometimes with clients, like if I give more stuff, if the sessions are longer or there are handouts or we get to talk on Voxer, I can charge more instead of, right? Instead of really looking at the value of the, of the work of the transformation instead. Mm -hmm. Just pile it on, pile it on. And I think that's online sales culture. Mm-hmm. That informs that a lot because we see the offer stacks from the guru over there who's got like $15,000 bonus package on a course that's like $500. And you're like, come on. But it's very common. Yeah. yeah. I didn't think about how that strategy can perpetuate this thinking of overvaluing the fluff. Right. And it's probably just to, a human nature thing too. Yeah. We're like more equals better when we know that's not that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Well, if you can solve my problem in 10 minutes, I will pay way more for that than if you can solve it in 10 weeks. Right. Yeah, I had a I had a coach at one point and she she asked me, what do you think is more valuable? Selling what you offer in six weeks as something that you could do in a day or the six week package. And my answer at the time was like, well, the six week package, because it's six weeks. It just, it's a lot of important things must be happening in those six weeks. Mm -hmm. Even if I could theoretically do it in a day. Mm -hmm. Of course I got schools and (laughs) now I get get it. Right. Absolutely. If you can solve my problem in 10 minutes, that is worth way more than solving that problem in 10 months. Yeah. And there's something about, I'd love to know your experience around this too, that important tension that has to happen if someone's going to make a decision and how easily, if I'm the seller, I can interpret that tension as pressure. Mm -hmm. And so I want to relieve the pressure because I don't want to put pressure on you. And I think that's where a lot of the Now I'm going to tell you all of the extra details to fill this space comes from because tension, we're not used to it, right? We're not used to it at all. But I don't think I've ever made an important decision if I wasn't at some point of discomfort. Otherwise, why am I going to change? Yeah. I've worked with a sales coach and and he would say the selling doesn't start or the coaching doesn't start until that tension is there until you've made the offer and suddenly it's real to the other person. And there's this potential hanging in the ethers that we need to speak about and what are the fears coming up? And I I, I think that's where the whole objection conversation arises, but It doesn't have to be this, oh, I'm going to like just knock out all your objections. Like 
hit me with them. I mean, it's just so such a ridiculous way of looking at it, really, because that is just the part of the conversation where like active listening becomes even more critical. Asking pertinent, sometimes hard questions and allowing space for the response becomes even more critical. And, And the work on your side of holding that neutrality, yeah, not the easiest thing in the world, but also not as complicated as we make it out to be. I agree with that, Shanti, especially here I go beating my drum about practicing, but that is uh, a very comfortable space to hold when you've practiced and when you know what you're doing is advocating for the client, Mm -hmm. right? Like taking a strong enough stance for their future that you can tolerate it like a hard question, right? You can tolerate pushing them, pushing their buttons a little bit if you have to, not because you're like selling them, but because you care. Yeah. And I think the active listening part, which is taught to coaches is so key too, because often it's picking up on the thing underneath the thing that's being said. And those subtleties are impossible to catch when you're too much in your head and you've got your own agenda and there, yeah. And the practice makes perfect sense that you would recommend that so much because I mean, anything where you are attempting to hold space, lead with curiosity, listen, be present. I mean, those are like, that's part of the practice of meditation. Right. Or yoga. Like, why wouldn't we practice it for other right. important aspects of, of our lives? Especially when we pile on the fact that you're going to ask somebody for money at the end. <laughs> right? right. That's a whole different, yeah. like, a whole different layer there. And our stuff will come forward. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's such an emotional thing. It doesn't matter how logical that decision might yeah. be. There's always going to be emotional layers to it. Yeah. How do you recommend people practice? Do we just like turn on Zoom and start (laughs) feeling? (laughs) So it is important that you have some sort of a recipe to follow, even if it's loose and even if it comes from your own intuition, but some sort of roadmap, I'll say, so that you, so that there's a rhythm instead of just, if I do this enough, but do it differently every time, you're not going to get better. So for me, the a, a solid rhythm is kind of four phases. So the first phase is just about clarifying the intention of the call today, right? Hearing from the client what they want to get out of it, sharing your own intention to serve and getting a buy-in, getting consent to present an offer at the end. Mm, you do that at the beginning. I do that at the beginning. Otherwise, I'm going to chicken out. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, right. that's so smart. And it, usually what it sounds like is some version of, so they've shared their intention and I've shared mine. And then to transition, I just say, okay, so I feel really, I hear you when you say you want to get this out of our conversation. And my intention is that at the end of our time together today, if I feel like I can help you, accomplish this goal, I'll reserve some time to tell you more about my programs and invite you to become a client. How does that sound? And so now they're not guarded thinking, when is the offer coming? Right. right? And now I actually have to present an offer, darn it, because I said I was going to. (laughs) Totally. Do you ever add anything in that's like, and if I feel it's not a good fit and it's not the right thing for you at this stage, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you about that and do my best to lead you to any resources I have that I feel could be a benefit. Do you add that in? Because I sometimes play around with that, but it's always awkward. (laughs) I, I don't for that reason. And also now I've already planted the seed that we're not going to work together. Right. 
Yeah. And I don't need to plant that seed because I don't know yet. So let's mm-hmm. stay on course with the intention that it is going to work out. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just found that it can it can be a, a bit of a distraction. Right. I'm sure there's a graceful way to do it, and I'm not against it. But for me, it just has always felt a little bit extra. Yeah. And maybe that's because I know so clearly inside of myself that if it's not a fit, I'm not going to present an offer, and I am going to recommend something else that it almost goes without saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And by the time someone gets on sales call and you, you know, you probably have an intake process for that, where the assumption is they would be. A yes. Right. Yeah. I actually, and it took us, I feel like it was four of us on my team spending a solid 45 minutes trying to get the language for this, right? <laughs> But the last question on my intake form for sales calls is something like, um, I value transparency. So here's what the investment looks like. So they come in knowing mm-hmm. why well, that whole like hide the price until you're talking to someone is yeah. unnecessary. And then I say explicitly, you know, if at the end we decide together that that you that the program is a fit for you. I'm going to invite you to join. And then they tick a box like, yes, I'm ready. Right. Yes. If we agree, I'm ready to do it or no, I'm not going to be ready. And I meet with you regardless of if you're ready or not. Mm-hmm. And that, so that's already clarifying the intention. So I've created a container where they know there's no funny business happening. Right. And I'm accountable to presenting that invitation if it feels aligned. Uh, that's so often ignored in the sales call conversation is that idea or question of whether they should know what it costs or not beforehand. And I love that you do that. I have experimented with it both ways and also currently do it in a way where it's totally transparent and like our packages are pretty custom. So it's not like a, this is exactly what it will be, but it's right. like a ballpark understanding of what the pricing is. And then they schedule the call. Mm-hmm. And that has alleviated so much unnecessary stress. Yeah. Right. And like that, like you were saying before that, a voice in your head that's like, oh, what if it's too expensive for them? Or what if, what if, what if? And like, if they already know, then we can get rid of that. What if? Yeah. And also what I have found is that it shifts the, the focus of the entire conversation. Yeah. Um, It's really about, let's see if this is a match instead of, let me see if I can like show enough value that they'll pay for it. And the client being like, oh, I hope, I hope this is in my budget. It just like that all goes away. Yeah. Yeah. Not so that's not money anymore. Yeah, completely. And you know, the fact that you do that, I think speaks, Shanti, to the quality of your organic marketing. So you're letting your messaging and your outreach and your work stand for itself. So that when people show up, like they, they're not price shopping. So by sharing the price, because I think that's the strategy is like, don't let people know the price because then they're just comparing prices. Mm-hmm. But if you have strong content, that eliminates that price comparison because they're there because of, they believe in, they share your beliefs and they believe in the quality of your work and they've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Oh, I'm I wanted to ask about the coaching part of the recipe because I have a problem where I can be very long-winded and go over time. Even if I'm setting aside 45 minutes with someone, I'll sometimes find myself looking at the clock. I'm like, oh, we've been talking for an hour. Like, how do you balance that? And, and manage your time and what amount of time are you then setting aside for a sales call? Yeah. You're My sales calls are always an hour. Yeah. Like, oh, I shouldn't say always. Sometimes I had one today actually where she was like, hello, here's my credit card number. Can we get started? please?" <laughs> so, but that's rare. <laughs> right. 
But I always, I and on my calendar, I'll even block off 90 minutes because mm-hmm. the last thing we want is to have this really connected, mm-hmm. um, incredible conversation, and then we rush through the offer. Um, but I think it can be done in an hour. And if the sales call is an hour, there are up to 20 minutes for coaching, which might sound like a lot of time, but it's not really. That can go by so fast, so yeah. fast. So how do I keep track of time and make sure people are getting the experience, right, of test driving the car so they understand what they're what they're getting into? I think it's about letting go of the belief that we have to arrive at a concrete result because really the value of coaching, I mentioned this earlier, but the value is being in the experience of that container. I, I think most, a lot of people walk through life not really being asked powerful coaching questions. So to be in that container where you're asking me to tell you more about why I think this thing is in my way, right? People don't ask me that question. They just give me advice on what to do. So the coaching, if we're doing 20 minutes, I'll back it up for a second. So the first step is clarifying our intentions. And then we move into this quick little phase of assessing, assessing the situation. So I often rely on uh, I, don't, I think Dan Sullivan actually calls it the Dan Sullivan question. He named it after himself, I think. <laughs> um, but I think of it as like a future-focused question. So imagine it's a year from now and we're celebrating. What do you want to celebrate a year from now? And then I just quickly assess, like, if the, what's one thing that feels like it might be standing in your way? And what's one thing that you feel will help you accomplish this goal? So I just get enough. And then the client gets a, an opportunity to choose what they want to coach around, mm. right? So I heard you say that time management has really been an obstacle for you. And I also heard you say that you're a really passionate person and that passion will help you accomplish your goal. Do you want to talk more about how to leverage that passion or should we explore time management for you? Then they'll pick one and then I get to say, all right, so... The goal today is to get you started on this path. And don't worry, we're going to have plenty of time to finish this conversation in our work together. But let's get you started today. And then I get to coach, right? Like, what's the most frustrating part about time management? And they tell me and I ask some questions and we get close to 20 minutes and it can just be wrapped up efficiently by saying, given what we've talked about so far, what's one concrete action you could take between now and the next time I see you? Mm. to improve your relationship to time management. That's coaching. Wow. So simple. Yeah. Keep it simple and people experience it's being seen and heard and experience what it's like to move forward with ease. That's, that's what people need in order to know if you're the coach for them. And if they can connect to that sentiment of like, we're going to keep working on this. We'll talk about this more next time we connect. If they feel that and they feel elated that Mm -hmm. that work is going to continue, what more powerful sign is there to the person on the, on the receiving end? Like, heck yeah, let's continue this. Right. Oh, that's such a good point. Yeah. 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 That's so fascinating. I'm over here wondering how can I coach people on uh, quiz stuff? And and their funnels. Like, I I love to go to the emotion underneath the strategy, too, because you don't just want a quiz or an awesome sales funnel because it's like you need to have it for your business. It's what it makes possible Mm -hmm. that is so appealing. And that's the driving force. So I think I just answered that question for myself. It totally did. (laughs) And maybe it's even asking a question like, imagine that your funnel is doing exactly what you want it to be. What does that feel like? And then like, what's one part of what you're doing right now that blocks you from that feeling? Mm -hmm. And then it can be like, okay, here's our, like, here's our priority with your funnels. We want to make sure that every step of the way you feel this way. So you can bring coaching into anything, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So neat. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I know you have a really cool, free, wonderful mm. resource on this topic, Flawless Recessions. Yeah, that's what oh. it's called. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us about that and where people can access it and find it? Yeah, thank you for asking. So Flawless Free Sessions is a pretty detailed overview of what we've been talking about here. These specific four phases of a sales conversation. We didn't get to it, but that last phase is inviting. Oh, and yeah. So I went right. through, right, like what it looks like and what to avoid and what to lean into, especially if you are values driven. And the idea of selling feels makes your armpits sweat immediately. And um, it's available at flawlessfreesessions.com. Awesome. Yeah, it looks so rich and like it'll be an incredible resource for anyone who wants to incorporate some of what we've talked about. Right. You know what? I want to go back if you don't mind, because you asked, how do we practice? And I didn't finish. I didn't really answer that question all the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I talked about, well, you have to have a recipe. So Flawless Free Sessions is that recipe. And then you need to ask your partner, your best friend, a peer inside of whatever mastermind you're a part of to actually come and role play with you. You can't Mm -hmm. practice by yourself. It's not the same, right? (laughs) And what I recommend is honing in on something specific. So we talked earlier, Shanti, about getting consent at the beginning. So if you and I were role playing, we'd do the whole thing, but I would say, can you pay attention to how you feel when I ask you for permission to sell to you at the end. That's the, that's the skill I'm working on right now. And so it's like roping in the people you love (laughs) to give you 40 minutes and really role play this. And then the brutal part is watching it back. Right. So you record it, you watch it back, you take notes on all the things you want to improve. And you just notice where you become disembodied and we can see it. It's so interesting to watch. Like just notice your own energy, but also notice the energy of the person you're role-playing with because you'll like, they'll tune out or maybe they'll grab their phone and look look at their phone really quick. You've lost them. That you're talking about the details instead of the transformation. Yeah. One thing that you want to fine tune or improve on next time and you rinse and repeat the process. Okay. That is great advice. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever practiced practiced in that way, but like we said at the beginning, there's always, there's always holes to fill in every aspect of our businesses. So I'm, I'm going to challenge myself to practice these skills. I'm, I'm also in a life coaching certification right now. And part of that is practicing coaching Mm-hmm. And it's the part that I've been most resistant to falling through on the curriculum, going to the classes is so fun and so easy. Yeah. But the actual act of probably not being all that good at it, especially at first and starting anyways and climbing that mountain is a challenge. Totally. Especially if you're an Enneagram three, Shanti. Right? I'm like, I have to be the best coach ever. And no practice allowed. Like, I I emerged from the womb this way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I think we can relate to it differently, right? If we're just really workshopping and the goal here is mastery. Yeah. Right? And then it can, I really do believe it can become this fun science experiment instead of this pain in the ass thing we have to tolerate in order to have a business. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it shows us our, our edges too. I think Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. the imperfections that come up and the emotions that are attached to that. And I think all of that plays into that concept of business being a powerful method for small growth and development. Yeah, I hear you. Well, there you go, friends. You've got the British Bake Off approach. (laughs) You've got the recipe. You might be craving cake at this point or just terrified that you're going to have to practice some sales call skills. But in any case, I think Dallas can probably continue 
sharing wisdom with you. So where beyond flawlessrecessions.com, which check that out, but where else can people find you? Yeah. Come and find me on Instagram. It's like my favorite place to hang out. And my, my handle is Dallas Travers Biz Mentor. We, I opened a new account a few months ago. Um, and also, I have a podcast. I know you're going to come, and we're going to talk oh. quizzes on my show. I'm so excited. Um, and that the podcast name is Coaches on a Mission. But the best, and I, I answer all my own DMs. So if you have a question, that's the best place to find me is Instagram. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your brilliance with us. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Whoa, look at you listening to the very end. We are so deeply grateful for you and borderline obsessed with hearing what resonated most and how you're taking the seeds planted in these conversations and sowing them in your life and business. It would mean more than you know if you would share this episode with a friend or subscribe, rate, leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Your reviews tell the algos behind the apps that we are worth pressing play on. So please, if you're feeling generous, take two minutes to share the love. And if you are curious around what your unique advantage is in this wild and wacky online world, take the unfair advantage quiz at shantyzack.com forward slash UA quiz. And thank you again, sunshine. Go light up the world and we'll see you next time.